it's hard. We talk to customers all day. They are not easy to deal with, so it's hard. So you have to be willing to get knocked down over and over and over. Get told no a hundred times a day and keep going. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I like to get these things going by reading your background to you and then you having me fill in the blanks. So hopefully your LinkedIn was updated recently. Otherwise, you're going to be filling in a lot of blanks here. You graduated from the University of Guelph, if I'm pronouncing that right. Guelph. Guelph. Okay. Guelph. Guelph with a BA in psychology. And then you went on to get your MBA in marketing at the University of Liverpool. You then went on to be the VP of sales and global partners at Diadem. And that was a five and a half year run there. And that was acquired by IHS a few months before you left. Then you went on to become the EVP and GM of Active Risk Group for just over two years. That was also acquired by Sword Group a couple months before you left. I sense the theme. And then you became the EVP and CRO of Scura Corporation for, call it a year or so, which was acquired by Indigene two years after you left. And then you're on a board or two for some accelerators. And now, currently, you are the VP and GM for Shopify Plus. You've been in this role for almost six years. What did I miss? You know what? That's pretty accurate. The only thing you missed is I'm old now. And so putting my entire career on LinkedIn seemed pointless. And so you missed the early days where when I got out of college, I started selling photocopiers for Lanier, which was relabeling Rico's photocopiers and selling them into the market. And so I had a couple sales gigs before Diadem of just on the street selling. Uh, But otherwise, that is an accurate depiction of my career. So I was watching a video of you, and we're going to talk about this later in the show, and I'm excited to do so. But the title that they introduced you as was Chief Sales Scientist. Is that a self-proclaimed title? (laughs) It was actually a self-proclaimed title. I like Um, it. And the genesis of it was, as an industry, sales, salespeople, sales leaders has a lot of smoke and mirrors. You know, there's a lot of storytelling in sales about how you become successful. What is a good salesperson? What is a good sales VP? That kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I had heard it and, of course, was part of that industry. But what I had found myself was that the best salespeople and the best sales leaders, there was no magic to selling. You always hear about these born salespeople. Oh, my God, this person was born to sell. They're so just naturally good at it. Okay, I mean, I've met lots of charismatic people. I've met lots of folks who could speak very well. But every amazing salesperson and amazing sales leader I ever met was a math junkie, was a scientist. They had decomposed what they did every day into individual bits and bytes and was working tirelessly to optimize all of those things so that they were just better than everybody else. And that wasn't magic. They weren't imbued with some, you know, special sauce. They just knew their world better than everybody else and worked harder. And so I became to think about sales as less as magic and more as science. It was an equation, A plus B plus C equals D. And if you just optimized the equation, I'll give you a different analogy. In manufacturing, there's something called Six Sigma. Now, Six Sigma's entire existence is about reducing waste in the system. So look at a manufacturing process and look at every single step and say, how can we reduce the waste in the system down to zero? Because we don't want to waste any time. We don't want to waste any product. The best salespeople I've ever met treated their careers like that. Looked at every single stat, looked at every single activity, optimize, 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 trying to make it better, faster, more efficient. And so... I thought sales scientist sounded a lot more accurate to me than sales person. So I attached that moniker to myself. 
Oh man, that's good. I'm going to bite my tongue because if I go down this rabbit hole with you right now, I'm worried we won't actually make a proper introduction to Shopify. So I'm going to hold off and I'm going <laughs> to table this for a little bit later in the conversation. For the audience, your market cap as of a couple of days ago is $120 billion. When you joined in 2014, that market cap was $1 billion. It is one of the I don't even want to give all the adjectives and verbs that could describe this monstrous growth. It's been absolutely incredible. So I'll let you go ahead and do it. What is Shopify? If you could tell the story of how it got started, I think it's fascinating, but I think it's important context before we dive into your experience. Sure. So first I'm going to say, never pay attention to companies' market caps. They're all fascinating, but I'm much more interested in growth rate than market cap, but that aside. So the way I try to explain Shopify to folks that aren't in the tech industry, If you shopped online in the last 30 days, odds are you shopped on a store that was using Shopify's software to run that store. So last year, about 300 million people shopped on a Shopify store in North America. And what we do is we create software for the brands that you know and that you love, the companies on Main Street, the brands in the mall, all these hot companies that you've heard of to use that allows them to create online stores, have point-of-sale systems in their physical retail locations and sell products to you and me as consumers. So a couple of quick examples to bring that home. So Staples runs on Shopify. So if you go and buy something at Staples, that's them using Shopify's technology. Allbirds, if you're familiar with Allbirds, it's great new footwear and clothing brand. They use Shopify's technology. And I'll give you a more maybe famous example, Serena Williams, fashion label is on Shopify. And so that means that they use our technology to create the store, to take payments. So we sit in the background. You never know it's us because nowhere on that site does it say Shopify. It says what the brand wants it to be. But we power a million stores like that around the world in 175 countries. We've got about 6,000 people dedicated to this work every day. And we really believe that The world needs more entrepreneurs. Small businesses and entrepreneurs are the lifeblood of any economy around the world. And we want to make it easier for you and any other entrepreneur in the world to bring your dreams and ideas to life. We want to lower that barrier of entry to start a company and then give you a runway that allows you to grow to any size anywhere in the world. So today, thousands of companies signed up for Shopify for the first time. Many of them started their companies today. And they will get their first sales over the next week. At the other end, we have companies doing billions of dollars on their online stores and everywhere in between. The origin story is not mine. It is Toby's. Toby is our founder. Toby is a German immigrant to Canada. He and his co-founders wanted to start a snowboard store. They were really avid snowboard and ski enthusiasts. So they wanted to start a snowboard store and start selling snowboards. This was in 2004. So they went out onto the internet looking for Shopify, right? An easy platform they could use to start their own snowboard store. What they found was the enterprise, the massive enterprise software companies, and realized it was going to cost them millions of dollars and take a year and a half of implementation to start an online store for them to sell snowboards. Toby, being a developer, a software developer, and his co-founders being software developers, thought this was crazy. And so started their own software platform for their snowboard store. What they quickly realized is it's possible that a software company might be slightly more valuable to the world than another snowboard store. And so they pivoted away from selling snowboards into building software so that other people could sell snowboards. And that became Shopify. And our first product launched in 2006. And here we are. It's an incredible story. So you mentioned growth rate. And maybe we can use that as the metric. What is the growth rate? And maybe a more simple question, why the hell is it growing so fast? What is going on that has created or unlocked so much value that it is growing at the growth rate that it is? So you mentioned, I started with Shopify in the fall of 2014. This was pre-IPO. We IPO'd in March of 2015. So when we IPO'd, we IPO'd at, you know, like you said, a valuation of around a billion dollars. And we IPO'd at around $120, $150 million worth of revenue. So that was just about five years ago now. I think we are technically the fastest growing company to a billion dollars in revenue in history is the stat I 
tend to remember. But anyways, no matter how you say it, it's fast. And here's why. There's two things at play from my perspective that lead to our growth. One is the world is awash with good ideas. People, you and I, we have jobs, but we have dreams as well. And for as long as you can remember, starting a company was hard. I mean, this was like real work. You needed a good idea, a lot of capital, human resources, physical products, all this kind of stuff. It was hard to do. And so very few people did it. The barrier to entry for starting something was very, very high. And so most people didn't do it. And so a lot of the best ideas in the world probably have never come to market because the people who did it didn't have the resources, didn't have access to capital, didn't know where to go, didn't have a supporting hand, and so just didn't do it stayed in their current circumstance. Shafai has worked tirelessly to, to use a term that's getting used in a lot of ways right now, to bend that curve downwards so that the barrier to entry to starting something became essentially zero. You could, without any technical abilities, any necessarily entrepreneurial abilities, except a good idea, any website abilities, any anything, start a company today, put it online, expose it to a global audience, and do that all in a couple hours for 20 bucks a month. I think this ignited a sense of freedom and independence for people around the world who said, maybe I don't have to quit my job. I can start this other thing and I don't have to give it everything I have. I don't have to mortgage my house and I can see if it works. And then lo and behold, it worked for people. And then other people saw that and piled onto that. And this Virtuous cycle started to create itself of entrepreneurs, breeding entrepreneurs, breeding entrepreneurs. And some of them became very successful and became worldwide brands that everyone loves and buys and everything. And that fed the cycle because they would talk about, hey, you know, I used Shopify and got this thing started and other people would see that. So I think there's an innate desire in humans for independence, an innate desire in humans for self-fulfillment. And so wanting to start something, it's just always been so hard and we've made that easier. A lot of people flock to that. The other side of this coin is for a long time, software sucked. If you were like a big company, there's a fascinating inverse relationship that I can only find in the software world, which is the more money you pay for software, the worse the software gets. It's the only market like this on earth, right? The more money you pay for a car, generally the cars get better. The more money you pay for houses, the houses get better. The more money you pay for clothes, the clothes get better. The more money you pay for software, the worse it gets. So you start off with free software that we can all just kind of download. It's actually kind of good. Does what you want. It's pretty simple. Everything. You pay millions of dollars for software. Suddenly you need an army to manage it. It's terrible. It looks weird. looks like it was built in the 70s. It makes no sense. So big companies were used to buying this horrible software to operate their e-commerce and their, their commerce businesses. And then we showed up with Plus, which is the area of Shopify that I run, and said, why don't you just have good software? Like, oh, we'll give you good software and it'll be cost effective. You can deploy it fast. You don't need an army of humans to manage it. And you can focus on what you are. You're a brand. You're a retailer. You're not an IT company. And that became the second shift of Shopify was suddenly you had all the entrepreneurs starting companies and then you had all the big companies transferring over into us. And this created a double effect of growth is this massive double flywheel running at the same time. And so we have a lot of businesses inside Shopify. And so you just think Shopify just kept adding flywheels to the system and they spun faster and faster and faster and more people adopted, more people adopted. And when you think about entrepreneurism, Entrepreneurism is counted by how many humans there are in the world. That's a pretty big market when you're talking about humans. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that we focused on customers. We focused on the long term. We believe we're building a hundred year company. So we're not sacrificing short term. How can we make money faster? How can we like do it in a way that's maybe faster to market, but worse long term. And we focused on product, build the best product. The rest of it will come. So I think, you know, those combined effects is what has caused us to have the success we've had. And just to make sure that I understand this correctly, Shopify Plus, kind of the division that you run and started within Shopify, basically a customer may qualify to be within Shopify Plus, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but in one of two ways. The first is they're a large enterprise and they come in and they say, these are the things that we want. These are the things that we need. Here's Shopify Plus. Awesome. The second is that they turn into a large enterprise. So it starts as an entrepreneur that turns into Allbirds, which then turns into they need awesome software for all the things that you mentioned earlier. And that would be the second way that they qualify for that. Is that 
Completely wrong, right, somewhere in the middle. No, it's pretty accurate. We built Plus for our own customers. Those customers that were on Shopify, that started on Shopify and were growing so fast, they were moving into much more complexity and size. They needed more. And so we built Plus to satisfy that, to give them an extended runway so they could just keep building these great businesses on Shopify. What happened was everyone that was using these terrible legacy enterprise platforms was like, well, what's happening over there? Why are all these really fast-growing, innovative, digitally native, direct-to-consumer brands, why are they all on Shopify? What is Shopify doing? And can we do it too? And so then that became the second wave of Plus, which was everyone on an external system realizing that they were either being disrupted by brands that were on Shopify, they wanted to be like one of the brands on Shopify, or they just needed to get away from this horrible system they had used for the last 30 years. And so they started calling us to say, can we use Plus? And that became Plus. But it really was founded in, we had such great entrepreneurs on Shopify who were growing so quickly, we didn't want them to leave. We're just like, keep building this amazing thing. Just stay here. And that's what we built Plus to do. And it just attracted everyone else. So the two topics that we're going to explore today are violating every rule in sales and business development and saying no more than you say yes. So maybe in that vein, I'll start with topic one. And one of the things that stood out was that Plus is in Waterloo, which is not where the headquarters are. And to our conversation earlier, you guys are going fully digital moving forward. But that was the first thing. I'm like, huh, they're not even near headquarters. Why? It seems like rule number one, you broke. You're not near headquarters. You're not in headquarters. You're not even in the same city as headquarters. Yeah. So maybe just to think about it for a second. Shopify started in 2004, launched its first product in 2006, didn't have a sales team until 2015. So I'm going to say that again. Started in 2004, launched a product in 2006, didn't introduce sales to the company until 2015. This is a product company who built something that was self-service. I mean, right now, you can log on to Shopify.com and you can start a store and be up and selling within an hour. So it didn't require this kind of like selling motion. It wasn't a thing that it saw a lot of value in up until that point. It wasn't until we realized, you know, hey, there are these larger customers in the world and maybe we're going to have to interact with them a different way that we introduced sales. So when they brought me in and the idea was like start a sales org inside Shopify, the joke was they were like, but just not at head office because we're a product company and this is where the product folks are. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can go and do this. We're, we're very interested in it as long as it's far away from our product orgs. Sounds about right. Um, and so, yeah, right. Which made, made perfect sense to me. I was like, okay, I get it. I get where we are in the hierarchy of importance. Gotcha. <laughs> and so interestingly enough, though, Waterloo, for those listening who don't know, is in Canada. So our headquarters is in Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. We have offices in Toronto and Montreal. Most of our office-based employees, until recently, were in Canada. We call ourselves fiercely Canadian. And Waterloo is very famous for the University of Waterloo. So the University of Waterloo is arguably, depends on who you want to talk to, the number one computer science program on planet Earth. They get massive amounts of recruiting from the biggest tech firms in the world. And so as a result, Waterloo is a very hot tech market. Interesting side point, last year, the Waterloo-Toronto corridor hired more engineers than the Valley did. So it's a very heavy engineering culture. Lots of engineers, lots of startups. There's 2,000 startups in Waterloo. It is the current, but also famously known as the home of BlackBerry. And so big tech community, but all engineers. And so when I started Plus, I chose Waterloo because it was counterculture. Waterloo had engineers everywhere and no salespeople, except there's two universities in Waterloo. There's Waterloo and the Wilfrid Laurier University. One is a business school, one is an engineering school. I said to myself, well, I'm never going to compete with talent in a place that's only trying to hire engineers. I'm going to get to hire anyone that isn't an engineer with zero competition. And so to me, it was the first to break all the rules. Don't go where all the salespeople are. Go where no one pays attention to sales. And so that's how we ended up in Waterloo. And so rule number one, and I can't imagine how many there are, but I'm excited to dive into them. Don't go where all the salespeople are. In order to do that, you kind of have to have the presupposition that it doesn't actually matter. And what I mean by that is that in order to think to yourself, okay, I'm going to go 
where I'm not going to compete, you have to buy the premise that a salesperson hasn't been made yet. And that's up to you to help them. And really, you're just looking for some set of intangibles. Rule number two, don't hire salespeople. (laughs) And I'm going to unpack that because it's not as absolutist as it sounds. So what you just suggested is 100% true. Okay, so here's some facts. There has never been a study that has correlated your past performance as a sales rep to your future performance. There is no relationship whatsoever, statistically speaking, between whether you were good as a salesperson in one job and whether you will be good as a salesperson in another job. Statistically, it's totally random. So the entire premise of sales recruiting is you got to hire people with experience. Why? There's no correlation between those two things having any relationship to each other. Here is what is true and what correlates a lot. There are a set of behaviors that must exist for someone to be successful. They must be creative. Now, creativity is a big word. It can mean lots of things. But generally speaking, what is in your head right now when I say the word creative is about right. They must be curious. Sales is a curiosity game. The more curious you are, the better you understand your customers, the better you understand the world, the more likely it is you're going to have a productive conversation. They must have a history of success. So I didn't say in what. It just means you need to be successful in some manner. So I'm going to give you a couple examples. A grade 13 pianist, a world-class athlete, and a chess champion are all very successful. That would qualify all of them as a history of success. Why? Because in order to be successful at that level, there's commonality. One, you're trainable. None of those people got there on their own. Two, you've failed over and over and over, and yet you got back up and went back to work trying to get better. All successful people have that structure in them. You have to be competitive. And not the like, yes, I'm competitive, but more the I'm competitive that if you kick me, I will get back up, right? If I fail, I will continue to fight and keep going forward. And I hate losing at the intensity of the white, hot, burning sun. And then the last is work ethic. I cannot make you get out of bed every single day. Okay. These are five criteria which are unteachable. You cannot teach these five things to anybody. They either exist or they don't exist. Every single attribute of sales, I can teach you, except those five things. So why does the sales industry chase sales performance as some kind of metric when there's no correlation to success instead of the behavioral attributes of a salesperson, which is directly correlated to success? That was my First premise is, all right, I'm going to build salespeople. So we hired kids right out of college, absolutely no experience, didn't care what degree they had, never looked once, didn't care what school they came from, is irrelevant. I was looking for those five criteria and those five criteria alone because I couldn't teach them to you. And I mean, they crushed it. They destroyed it. I mean, this is part of the story of Plus is we didn't hire real salespeople for years. Salespeople had actually been in sales before. We just kept hiring people who had never been in sales, but met those five criteria. And our efficiency numbers, if if I was public and was allowed to talk about them, would make everybody's current sales model look brutally inefficient. And here's my theory on that. And I may be wrong. I actually don't think if you hire people who have no experience, I don't think they understand the rules of sales. You know, if you're in sales for your whole career, there's a, a set of operating principles. I'll give you an example. The average enterprise sales rep should make $120,000 a year and should probably sell between one and a half and $2 million in revenue. I mean, my guess is if I took 100 companies and dismantled their sales orgs, that would be the standard structure for enterprise selling. You hire someone who's got no idea that that's a thing. What they end up doing is selling millions of dollars a year without the paychecks. That's not taking advantage of them. It's just they don't understand why there's a cap. Why is there a limit? Who said you only could make 10 calls a day? I made 100 yesterday. Where is this rules? So you had a bunch of folks who didn't have any concept for the thing they were doing. And so did it with the raw enthusiasm of new people and the results to this day, I still struggle to understand how effective they were because it shouldn't work. You can't hire them, not train them, send them into the world and then get them to turn over millions of dollars in revenue. It's not going to work. And I was like, but it did. Here, look, here they are. What do you want me to say? And I really come back to, It was violating that idea 
that salespeople have to have been salespeople first. There's a few things that I want to unpack. The first, would this be possible not at Shopify? And what I mean by that is, how do I say this? No, don't, don't be friendly. Just say it. You had a massive unfair advantage before you started. Well, certainly, yes. But I also think the reason that you are saying that there's no correlation for past performance and future success is because past performance is highly variable and it's very hard to dilute those variables down to the talent of the person. And a lot of that is based on circumstance. They could have a good territory. They could have a good whatever it is. They could just be a part of, you know, Salesforce in 2006 and, you know, all boats rise with the tide as an example. And so I do think to your point earlier of, look, that correlation is pretty weak because circumstance matters so much. And it's hard to tell if that person was just a beneficiary of the circumstance. I guess my question is, are these people a beneficiary of the incredible Shopify circumstance, you know, having had a brand for 10 years and then putting in salespeople on top of that? Yeah. So it's a great question. And on the surface, the shortest answer to that is probably to some level, but think about what plus was plus wasn't trying to sell Shopify plus was trying to sell an enterprise version of Shopify. So what Shopify had spent 10 years doing is building an SMB brand, an entrepreneur brand. Hey, we're for the little guys. We're, if you want to start something today, come to Shopify. Go to our website right now, shopify.com. You won't find a single mention of the enterprise except in the bottom footer of the page. We're still entrepreneurial focused. So what this sales team was trying to do was convince the world that you shouldn't buy SAP, you should buy Shopify. Well, on delivery, you'd be like, well, that's an insane value proposition. No one even knows you. You don't have any enterprise customers. You're not even a thing in the enterprise. The people in the enterprise couldn't even identify you on a list of commerce vendors because you don't <laughs> register in that market, right? And so all of the thing that was Shopify was muted by the merchants we were trying to sell it to because you'd call them and they'd be like, who? Who is Shopify? Wait, 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 wait. My mother has a has a knitting business on Shopify. You think I can run my multi-million dollar business on the same thing my mother's using? Literally the interactions. So don't get me wrong. What I had was a massive infrastructure. I had this super powerful machine already built that I could leverage off of. I had a certain brand cachet that I could be like, yeah, 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 but Shopify's public, you know us now, like you can go see us, we existed in the real world. But even if that's true, and it is, right, it doesn't remove the fact that everybody you've ever met who's ever been successful at anything has those five criteria in common. And so as hiring managers, it is fascinating how we tend to look at stuff that doesn't matter. GPA, totally irrelevant, has no correlation to success. I don't care where you went. I don't care what school you went to. It means nothing. That's not my research. Google's done this research. Facebook's done this research. IBM did this research. Except, what do we ask for? A four-year degree from a major college. Why? Who cares? It means nothing. We tend to focus on things that don't have any relationship to whether or not this individual in front of you will be successful. Instead of optimizing for the things that we should focus on, because that is more indicative to us. And so I think the answer to your question is, can it work for others? Well, of course, because it's not limited to sales and it's not limited to Shopify, it's human behavior. And so when I go to other companies and they're like, oh, we're having challenges with the sales teams and they're not scaling as well. My first time was like, well, tell me about them. Who are they? Where'd they come from? What's their backgrounds? And in, invariably, I get the, well, this one was a huge monster at X company. This one sold X millions of dollars to that other company. I'm like, no, 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 I don't care about any of that. It means nothing. Are they here every day and they're working, right? They're trying. Are they experimenting with things? How do they do sales calls? Do they ask a bunch of questions? Tell me about who they are, not this BS resume crap that doesn't actually mean anything. I agree. If I'm a sales leader, I think actually the main reason why they wouldn't do it is risk. Because if you hire, you know, and this is a totally unfair characterization, but, you know, a group of non-sales misfits that have no past performance, that's very risky as a leader. It's a lot safer to just hire, you know, those that have a track record of success and the normal things that you just talked about. And then if something goes wrong or is awry, you say, look, it's not the team, it's the product or it's the market or whatever it is. In your case, yep. if things aren't going well, which clearly they have, and so whatever, then it's the team. So as I think about that, I'm like, man, it's risky. Okay, totally. So if you want to come second, do the things everyone else does. 
right? You want to be the best in the world, take risk. It's that simple. It's like, cool, you want to follow somebody else's playbook that it's not really tuned for your model and seems crazy. This is, it goes back to the science thing. I'm sorry, I'm not actually suggesting anything crazy. There is no statistical proof that that person working at another company and being successful at it will translate to us. So showing up in a meeting and being like, well, they were amazing over there is like, it's also Tuesday. So I hired them because it's Tuesday. <laughs> they have exactly the same relevance on that person's ability to be good here. So if you as the sales leader and your executive peers are like, their past performance is the thing I really care about. I mean, you might as well add a whole bunch of other relevant characteristics to the criteria because they have just as much impact on that outcome. That's what I'm suggesting. It's not risky. Risky is hiring them because of their past behavior because there's no correlation of that's going to work out for you. That's risky. There is a statistical correlation between the five criteria I said and people's success level. So I don't know which one's actually risky. What you're talking about is doctrine. There is a sales doctrine in place. We all grew up with it. We were all told about it. This is the magic of selling. It's the pageantry of selling. Well, look at this person. They've been this and this and this and this and this. It's not a relevant conversation. But the industry is so steeped in this that we just follow along. We're all lemmings following along, being like, okay, well, that other company did it and they seem to work out, so we're going to do it too. No company that's ever changed the world did the things the other people were doing. I agree. And maybe just to put a bow on it, because I do agree, but I also think we mischaracterize success. And so what I might say, hey, I've worked with this guy or gal before, she blew out her number. What I really should be saying, or this is just a euphemism for me to say, they were competitive, they were creative, they had a strong work ethic, right? It could be a more simple, less descriptive way of saying or describing the inherent character traits that enabled them to go blow out that number. It's also much harder to interview for those things than it is to interview based on your resume. And so people take the easy path. Once again, no one who's ever done anything impressive took the easy path. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was the next question. And that's probably the most important part. And for some reason, somehow these interviews almost always come down to how do you find the right people and how do you interview them? Because as you and I know, that's most of the job is we got to go find the right people to help us do the job that we need to do. How do you interview for intelligence, creativity, curiosity, competitiveness, work ethic, history of success? And you don't have to go through every tip and trick in the book, but what are some things that you do? Okay, so Shopify is famous for what we call our life story interview. And so the life story interview is fairly straightforward, although it's nuanced and complicated in how we do it. But think about it this way. The first interview question is tell me your life story. That's it. There's no guidelines as to how you're going to tell me your life story or where even your life story should start. Should you start when you're born? Are we talking about your career? And the answer is, I don't know. You tell me. Okay, so here's something that fascinatingly comes from hearing someone describe their life story the answer to all of those questions. Because how you describe yourself tells you a lot about someone's intelligence and creativity and curiosity. It tells you a lot about a history of success. It tells you a lot about competitiveness. Now, it's not just going to unfold. You have to be good at asking questions and probing and taking people down and being like, describe that one in detail and stuff like that. But you glean an enormous amount of information about somebody as they explain what is essentially an unlimited amount of information to you in a succinct amount of time. So that's one mechanism to get to things that are not obvious. Now you gotta be looking for them. You know, when someone says, oh, I played the piano for 15 years, you can't just hear, I have a hobby. No one plays the piano for 15 years that isn't serious. And so what you now want to probe is like, why? How far did you get? How hard was that? What happened when you failed at some rehearsal? What did you do? Why didn't you just stop then? Because what are you looking for now? You're looking for competitiveness. You're looking for work ethic. They're describing it to you as they describe playing piano for 15 years. So you have to be ready to look for those things and ask those questions. But that life story is a great hack to just see how people explain things to you because you'll learn a lot in that way. In sales, role play. And here's what I mean by role play. I've seen a lot of organizations role play in very easy role plays. I don't think easy role plays are that valuable because you don't really learn anything. The whole like, sell me this pen. I mean, it's very cute, right? but you're not really going to learn what you really want to learn. 
So the moment you put a sales rep on the phone, chaos ensues because the real world does not conform to sell me a pen. The real world goes sideways in a hurry. So I'm going to give you an example of the first five salespeople that we hired. I did that hiring directly. And here's some examples. And I'm not saying everyone should run out and do this because, again, moment in time, company specific, blah, blah, blah. But just creativity. In the middle of an interview, I'd just get up and leave. And a different person would show back up and then keep the interview going. I just wanted to see what they would do. People are like, well, that seems rude, does it? Because last time you called a customer, did the customer do exactly what you want them to do? Because those are not the customer calls I remember, right? And so what is a sales rep going to have to do? Adapt. So let's see if they adapt. And what happened? We did this a few different times. Some people imploded on delivery. They could not deal with the fact that the person they had researched, me, wasn't in the room anymore. They were ready for me. They weren't ready for Craig. They weren't ready for Harley. They weren't ready for somebody else. But you learn very quickly how people adapt in a real world. And so role-playing became an interesting kind of like, well, let's see what you're like in a real-world scenario. And so I think role-playing with sales reps in the interview process is critical because otherwise you're learning how they do interviews. And I can read books and watch videos on how to do the best interview. I can't read a book to tell me what would happen if the person I was supposed to interview with left and someone else showed up and just kept going with the interview. I'm going to learn a lot about that person when we do that kind of stuff. So I think you have to define a process that says, first and foremost, stop looking in the obvious places for people. The best people are almost never in the place you're looking for them. So get over this background. Get over this idea that they need some degree from some university. Get over this idea that they need some pedigree of I worked here and worked there. Go looking for the people who maybe are misfits. Maybe do approach things in a novel way, right? Because selling is novel. Selling is creativity. And then focus your interviewing on the things that matter. Ask the questions that uncover whether they're actually curious. The easy one is like, well, what do you know about Shopify? Well, if the answer doesn't then just like take you down a rat hole of, I found this out. Actually, I just started my own store. I, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore because I think I should be an entrepreneur. Now you're talking. Now you're like, okay, now I'm interested. If it's like, well, I understand you're an e-commerce platform and that your market cap is 100 million. Part of you is just like, yeah, yeah, that took one Google search. That's not curiosity. So it's kind of throwing out the old model and saying, yeah, you can keep following the masses and you'll always be in second place. Or you can go looking for a model that allows you to find the people that you want and look for potential, not experience. Look for odd, not conformist. And look for attributes, not history. Because your pool just went from a tiny little slice to basically humans as a population. There's a lot of humans. So before we go into saying no more than you say yes, I had one more question which is a story that I was hoping you maybe could share. So I talked to a couple of people unbeknownst to you on your team, and I was just trying to dig around and see what could I ask here. And as you know, we, don't, we try not to prep for these interviews. We like to do it on the first take. And there was a story that came up. Tell me if this is folklore or not, but you had a number that I think the executives gave you. And it felt more like an ultimatum than anything else. And it basically said, hey, here's the number. I don't think you told the team about that quota or the number, but you basically made it known that we have to hit this by the end of the year or else. And that or else felt like, you know, this thing may or may not keep going if we do or don't. And credit to you, you did a few months before. Is that true? Or can you tell us more about that? Okay, so it's kind of true. And so what's being told there is two different stories being merged into one. In the <laughs> interviews with all the first salespeople, I kind of said to them, it was kind of like interviewing for folks to be part of the Christopher Columbus voyage. Here's how that interview goes. Here's the deal. We're going to kind of go, try and go do something that no one's ever done before. There are going to be one of two outcomes. One, we all die and this doesn't work. Okay? That's the most likely outcome. Because, like, I don't know what we're doing. It's crazy. It's probably not going to work. Option number two is it totally works and we all live in glory for the rest of our lives. So, I don't know. What, what do you want to do? Right? I was intentionally looking for the people that got excited by chaos because right? that's what it was. The first year, I, no one knew what we were trying to do. This seemed insane. And so, yes, you know, Harley, my boss at that moment was like, I want this. He set the bar very high. And I was like, okay, given that we have no humans working on this at the moment, that seems crazy. And he's like, yes, welcome to Shopify. 
right? And so I went and I told the team the number and they all freaked out. And they were like, that's impossible. And I was like, well, how do you know it's impossible? We've never tried yet. And Shopify's never done this before. And they were like, well, it just seems crazy. I was like, that's true. It does seem crazy. But hey, again, we signed up for this crazy thing. So let's give it a shot, right? Let's go. Let's run as hard as we can run and we'll get where we get. And we're going to learn a ton, which is the main point is we were learning, right? Is like, let's experiment, let's iterate, let's learn. What we very quickly realized is the capacity of these folks who had never sold before, had never had a real job before, had no idea what e-commerce was until they started with Shopify, was far greater than the math equation I had put together to suggest what they were capable of. And so, yeah, we actually exceeded the number that was given to us. And in that moment, set what plus was and who we were as individuals and what was possible if we just ignored the outside world's what is and isn't a thing. I don't want to follow. I want to lead. To lead, you have to break all the barriers everyone else says is impossible. And so that has been our ethos from the beginning is when other companies are like, oh, you can't do that. That's not possible. We're like, amazing, current goal, challenge accepted, because that's who we want to be. And so true stories, but that was amalgamated into one. And I think the big part is I absolutely told them, I'm not alone here. This is a mission one person cannot complete. This requires the team to buy in for all of us to sit at the same table and be like, what do you want to do? You want to do it? We do it together. Or we don't do it. Because it's too hard to just play the, I'm the executive. I'm going to tell you how it should work. That's bad. bullshit. Let's get in the foxhole and let's make sure we're all on the same page. And then let's give it everything we got. And that's a pact you make. And that's a pact we made when we were very small and everyone was unsure. And we were in Waterloo because if it failed, they could bury us and no one would ever have to talk about it again. And, <laughs> you know, but that's what we made. And we set ourselves up and that's who we are and that's who we've been. And that was our, that's our culture and that's our ethos. And that's, that's what makes plus plus is that kind of like, bring it, bring it. You think it's not possible? Bring it over here. We'll show you what's possible. The rebels of Shopify. I love it. Saying no more than you say yes. You mentioned earlier in the show that you believe you're going to be a hundred year company. And so I think you're oriented towards having customers that are going to be along that journey with you. Tell me what you mean, maybe just to start with, what does that mean? Saying no more than you say yes. And I think in this specific context of this question, it's, you know, probably for customers. Yep. Oh, no, it's 100% customers. Okay. So uh, this is just math. So the best sales organizations in the world have about a 10% hit rate, meaning that they close about 10% of the people they talk to. So reverse that for a second. And what that means is 90% of the people that they talk to aren't a fit. They don't make any sense. Yet the doctrine of sales is, yes, our job is to get them to say yes. Right? We're trying to get people to say yes. I just think that's wrong. Don't try and get them to say yes. Trying to get them to say no as fast as humanly possible. Because way more of them are going to say no than anyone who's going to say yes. And so what you need to do is stop talking to the ones who are eventually going to say no. Get them to say no as fast as you possibly can in the sales cycle so you can move on to the next one who might actually say yes to you. So if you look at a lot of the sales theory and a lot of sales process steps, there's a lot of carefulness around hard questions. I want a customer who is going to be a perfect fit for the thing that I'm selling. I think about this in the box a triangle and a circle. If you're in the box, meaning that you as a customer fit the box that I'm selling, I'm going to try my hardest to show you where that value is. There's a triangle around the box of things that, ah, I don't quite do it, but I mean, if you stretched me, I could figure out how to do it. I maybe should talk to you and we should try and figure something out. Outside of that triangle is a circle. The answer is no, no. You are not a good customer for me. I am not a good platform for you. This is never going to work out. Neither of us is going to be that successful. And I don't care that you have money. I don't care that I have a quota. This isn't going to work. I need you to be raving mad about how good we are. I need you to go out and tell everyone this was the greatest decision you ever made. I can't do that if you're only kind of a fit. So stop selling to people who are kind of a fit. Get really good at eliminating them from your sales funnels and your pipelines as both sales reps and as sales leaders and get really good at finding the ones who are the perfect fits. So get good at saying no. You have to say no. 
there's going to be customers who are going to be there and they're going to be like, I have this big fat check. And if you just build me these 14 custom features that I need, right, that no one else on earth has ever possibly needed and will never ask you for again, I'll give you this big check. Companies take that check. It's unbelievable, especially small companies. And I get it. You need money. Get it. But guess what you just did? You just made yourself a custom software shop that can't scale. That customer will hate you. You will hate them. And at some point in the future, an ultimatum will be put on the table. You will either threaten to fire them or they will threaten to fire you. Now you're in a stalemate with probably the customer paying you the most amount of money, right? This is a terrible scenario to get it. You're better off to just be like, I love you. This is amazing. I'd love to take your money, but I can't make you successful. So no. So my advice is get your sales organization to optimize for asking the hard things early and then make it okay when they say no to customers. I had a call today with Fortune 50 giant company we all think would be amazing. It's a terrible fit. I told them no. You should high five that sales rep. You should do a presentation on how amazing it is to say no to giant companies, right? <laughs> and you should reward that kind of behavior because that's what you need. Because the alternative is they're going to take your company into a black hole you will never survive. So this is my no ethos. It's just like, no, no, you're going to say no way more in life than you're going to say yes. When you say yes, finally, you're going to get customers who will be a multiplier to you a thousand times over. That's what you need. And in that example, does that necessarily have to be an organization or could that just be one constituent that might be the wrong person to be that buyer within that organization? Are those one and the same to you? Yeah. So I think they can absolutely be an organization or a person within an organization who doesn't see it the same way. So I'm going to give you the example. We sell, you know, quote unquote, although I hate this term, enterprise software plus. So normally enterprise software gets sold to the CTOs, right? That's who buys. We don't sell to the CTOs because every time we talk to the CTOs, because of the way Shopify does things, we're like, yeah, so here's what we're trying to say to you is most of the people you employ, you probably don't need them anymore because we're not going to do that. All of your architecture and infrastructure and securing everything, you're just going to give to us because welcome to SaaS software on-prem's dead. Your whole world's going to be kind of way different than it was before you started talking to us. Most CTOs, not all, some are very enlightened. Most CTOs are like, no, I'm not doing this. You're wrong. That's not the way technology is going to go. And they just fight with us. And we're like, okay, you're the wrong person. We'll just go tell this to the CMO and the CEO shift the conversation, suddenly they're like, oh my God, yes, everything you just said we need to do to this company right now. And it's like, great, they became a better fit. So that was a fit sh shift. No to the CTOs, yes to the CMOs. And so that was one no. And then the other is customers who are just like, you know, we had this early on, very big, the biggest retailers in the world who are just like, I'll give you $10 million, I just need you to do this. And the answer is always like, I'm not a custom software shop, so no. And they're like, but why? It's $10 million. Again, this is where I was very lucky. I didn't need the money, right? I had Shopify bankrolling this thing. So I was like, I don't need the money. I need you to be happy. I can't make you happy. And building custom software is not a long-term plan. So no, I'm not going to do this. The irony is, is a lot of companies we said no to at the beginning, we've been able to develop, right? And move to the point where two things happened. One is they actually just agreed with us over time. They're like, you're right. The way you want to do it's better than the way we want to do it. And two, we've gotten to the place where it's like, okay, fine. We could make you happy now, but it takes a lot. It's interesting that you say that because, and it's the last question before I ask you my, my last question, but in doing a little bit of conversation seeking with your team, one of those companies you actually mentioned earlier in the conversation with me, Staples, and they said, you got to ask Lord about this. They are now a very large customer. In fact, large enough where you reference them as one of your marquee customers. You told them no a couple of times. They are now one of Plus's biggest customers. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I think what we had as conversations over time is I don't see how we can make this work. What you want and what we are are not aligned. I get that we're the cool kids. I get that you want this to work on Shopify, but you're going to hate us because that's <laughs> not the way we work. It doesn't work like this. And so we have these conversations and then things change on either sides and we get back together. And this is generational. This is why I say we take a long-term view. My response to all the customers we say no to is like, it's okay. It's okay. I'm going to be here for a long time. Maybe in the future, it'll be better. We can talk again. Why are we acting like we'll never see each other again? It'll be fine. 10 years from now, we'll talk again. Maybe it'll be different. And every single time I've had those conversations, without fail, that customer 
has been a fan of us, even though they weren't on us. They've actually gone to other companies and told them they should come to us, even though they couldn't. Because what they said is, they'll tell you the truth, right? If you're not a fit, they will tell you. Most of the people I said no to could not believe I was sitting there telling them we weren't going to do it because they'd never had someone say that to them. They'd always just had someone be like, yeah, okay, I'll take the money and then start a project that could not be successful. This is a great place to end it. I wish I didn't have to. Two questions that I ask at the end of each of these. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? I think grit is the understanding and willingness to get back up. This is not easy. Selling is not easy. I joke all the time in my sales career, people come up and be like, selling, you guys don't do anything. I'd be like, I'll trade you jobs right now. Right now, I'll trade you. We'll see. We'll see what you think after you do my job for a while. It's hard. We talk to customers all day. They are not easy to deal with, so it's hard. So you have to be willing to get knocked down over and over and over. Get told no a hundred times a day and keep going. And keep looking at it as a snowball. I'm just going to keep packing more and more onto it. It's just going to keep rolling. It's going to get bigger. It's going to get bigger. It's going to get bigger. And without that, this becomes an impossible career. That to me is great. It's just like waking up every day and knowing that the majority of the people you're going to talk to today are going to tell you no, or you're going to tell them no, and you're still going to do it. And you're going to wake up the day after that and do it again. And you're going to wake up the day after that and do it again, because that's the thing that makes you successful. That to me is what great is. Yeah. It reminds me of the quality you look for in salespeople competitive. I mean, and, and the way that you described competitive was competitive with yourself to get back up again. Work ethic and competitiveness. That's what it is. Lauren, if someone wants to get a hold of you, how should they? Are you hiring? Where are you hiring? If so? So Shopify is hiring. Shopify.com forward slash careers. We're hiring all over the world. We're hiring all kinds of roles. So please go check them out. We need the best people to do what we're doing. If they want to get a hold of me, you know, Lauren at Shopify.com is my email, but the easier place sometimes is actually Twitter and LinkedIn. So at Lauren Paddleford is Twitter. And then, you know, LinkedIn, you could just search me. Lauren, thank you for your time, man. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.